Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to Deconstructed. I'm Ryan Grimm. And today we're taking a look at the radically changing fortunes of the American labor movement. Organically, without the intervention of organized labor, we've seen a surge in workplace union drives everywhere from REI to Amazon to Starbucks. That led to the spectacle of outgoing Starbucks CEO Howard Schultz getting dragged before the Senate's Labor Committee to explain why his company has been breaking labor law to push back on the unionization wave. The committee happens to be chaired by Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders. Over the past 18 months, Starbucks has waged the most aggressive and illegal union-busting campaign in the modern history of our country. That union-busting campaign has been led by Howard Schultz, the multi-billionaire founder and director of Starbucks, who is with us this morning only under the threat of subpoena. Yes, I have billions of dollars. I earned it. No one gave it to me. And I've shared it constantly with the people of Starbucks. And so anyone who keeps labeling this billionaire thing is... Mr. Schultz, I, I don't mean to cut you off. We have time limits here, and you have well, the I opportunity. Think, I, I'm not cutting no, you it's, off. It's your, it's your moniker constantly. It's unfair. Were you informed of or involved in the decision to withhold benefits from Starbucks workers in unionized stores, including higher pay and faster sick time accrual? My understanding... When we created the benefits in May, one month after I returned as CEO, my understanding was under the law, we did not have the unilateral right to provide those benefits to employees who were interested in joining a union. Am I hearing you say that you were involved in the decision to hold benefits from Starbucks workers in unionized stores? Is that what I'm hearing? It was my understanding that we could not provide those benefits under the law. Inside labor unions, meanwhile, we're seeing a process play out that is quite similar to what we've seen inside the Democratic Party. In the 1980s, unions, like Democrats, were in retreat, and union leaders played defense on one hand while getting cozy with corporations on the other. There were stirrings of opposition to this, just like there were protests against the same tendency inside the Democratic Party. But those workers, who pushed for union democracy and reform, represented a largely powerless rump throughout the 1990s and into the 2000s. But workers aren't putting up with it anymore, and these movements inside labor unions have grown too large to ignore. After years in the wilderness, militant Teamsters managed to elect Sean O'Brien to take over the union, which could lead to a titanic clash this summer with UPS. And last week, UAW workers responded to years of weakness and corruption at the top by electing Sean Fain president. A member of the caucus that has been fighting for union democracy, he pledged to empower workers to seize the reins of power. Our power as a union, as the UAW, is our unity. Our power is in our members. It's not who we call our president. 
It's not who's up here on this stage. It's in you all. So I want to ask all of you, when are we, all of us, going to rebuild our power as a working class? Damn right. Right now. Labor reporter Alex Press covered Sean Fain's victory and has written about it in her latest piece for Jacobin, and we'll talk to her later in the show about the historic resurgence of the UAW and the Teamsters. But first, the newly revitalized Teamsters are now trying to organize roughly 1,000 new DHL workers at the CVG airport situated in Cincinnati and northern Kentucky. It's a crucial hub in our global supply chain and can also be a dangerous place to work. Two DHL workers involved in the union drive, Brandy Dale and Stephen Fightmaster, Join us now to talk about why they've decided to try to join the Teamsters. Brandy and Steve, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having us today. Brandy Dale, can you kind of walk us through what a day in the life of a, an intercontinental ramp agent is? Yes, absolutely. So when we arrive at work, our lead usually sends out a uh, text message and lets us know what gates we will be setting up, which setting up means um, we get the dollies, which is what we haul the freight on. Uh, We put out the cones that go around the engine and around the plane. We put out the chalks, you know, we get the stairs ready. Basically kind of, you know, almost like if you were setting up for a restaurant, you know, you would get, you would get all your food ready. So we get that done and then we find out what our actual assignment is, what plane we'll be downloading or uploading, or, you know, if we just need to check one to make sure that it can be sent to um, the remote part of the airport to be maintenanced properly. Then we we do our download or we do our upload. We usually have one to two of them uh, before we go to lunch. Um, we go to lunch, and then when we come back out onto the ramp, for my crew, when we come back out, we do our upload, which is we put the freight on the plane to send it to its destination. Uh, nine times out of 10, our destination is Narita, Japan. Um, so we load our, our 747. You know, we make sure that everything's in place, everything's secure. We get the plane all closed up. You know, we check and make sure that everything's right. Everything's where it's supposed to be. We talk to maintenance, tell them we're ready. They tell us, you know, when it's time to take the chalks out, when when the flight crew is ready, and then uh, we we take the plane, we we send it out, and we go on our merry way, and the freight's on its way to Japan. And Fightmaster, you're a ramp lead. What's the difference there? The biggest difference uh, really is just between the the intercon ramp and the domestic ramp in general. When I get there, I've got to get all the equipment ready for my guys for the night, right? And then I go and pick them up because I arrive just a little bit before they do. And then we'll we'll call what we call ramp control or or the tower. Um, they're the, they give us assignments, and so we'll call up you know shortly after midnight and get our our inbound assignments as they come. And depending on the night, that can be anywhere from two to five offloads in a night. Usually take a quick break and then go and and, and do our outbounds. And so the the, the biggest difference um, really is just in the size of the aircraft we're working on. While Brandy's crews are, are working on triple sevens and seven forty sevens. A lot of times, you know, I'm on uh seven six seven three hundred. It's just slightly smaller. The real difference is is the automation between our aircraft. My crew's much smaller. I have six guys on it, including myself, also including my tug driver. So realistically when we're working on an aircraft there there are four guys, four of my guys on a plane between the the top side of the aircraft and, and the belly side. You know, we have six people, but I'm on the ground and my tug driver's on the ground. So without the automation, 
it's it's tough because a lot of times I'm, I might only have two guys pushing a six to nine thousand pound can, and depending on the gate we're at, that can be almost entirely uphill. Jeez. So <laughs> it's uh it's definitely a physically demanding job. Yikes! And so, Brandy, you you've been there about five years, uh, and yeah. so I'm curious. When did people start kicking around the idea of organizing into a union and what were the kind of things that got people, you know, talking and thinking in that direction? I actually wasn't around for the very beginning of the talks. I mean, I I didn't really know about it until they had already contacted uh, the Teamsters and, you know, had already kind of started to already started to kind of organize stuff. But I would say as far as my own experience, that I noticed that there was a lot of things that could be better, a lot of things that could be changed. There was a lot of favoritism and there was no real accountability for for the management team to, you know, uphold the rules and regulations that they were supposed to be following. There was no real drive to to be honest and fair about things. And I think that as far as I'm concerned, at least, that's one of the biggest reasons that I was interested uh, when someone mentioned to me that we would be getting possibly the Teamster Union in. I knew that there could be a lot of room for change. I mean, I feel like it's a great company, but I feel like it could be a phenomenal company with just a few tweaks here and there, you know, and having having the employees actually have a voice rather than being basically held verbally captive for the most part. Yeah. And Brandy, can you talk a little bit about what the, the conditions are like and what, what the, what the safety is like? I, I, I hear you, you know, got, got hurt on the job recently. What, what happened and, and what are the types of situations that arise as you're kind of moving all of this cargo around? Oh uh, yeah, sure. So at DHL, safety is paramount according to their word of mouth. It's written on all of the supervisors, trucks, safety before block time. And it puts on a great front. I mean, to the naked eye, it would definitely seem like safety is paramount there. However, on a daily basis, we have so many things that are just completely unsafe and really unrealistic to be done the way that they want them and be able to be safe. I mean, you have K-loaders that are broken. I witnessed a K-loader the other day, which is, as Stephen said, it's the unit that we use to bring the cargo into the plane. Okay, so you're, you know, 25, 30 feet up in the air on these big planes, and sometimes they just kind of have a mind of their own. They just do whatever they want. You won't be touching a switch or anything, and the K-loader will start to rise, and that's very dangerous because if your freight isn't in the right place and your K-loader rises, it, it could drop, you know, a can that weighs 9,000 pounds right on somebody's head. I mean, I've never heard of that happening where it hits someone, but I've seen them come off a K-loader I don't know how many times. And just the other day, I was in the airplane and the K-loader started rising by itself and it rose to such a pitch that the guy that was operating, it could have been seriously hurt. So with my with my experience, uh, we were doing a domestic plane, the kind of plane that um, Fightmaster works on. I believe it was a seven seven six seven three hundred. Is that Probably. yeah? And there was a can in the back. Uh, cans are just these big, big containers that are made of like metal and almost like plexiglass. 
that's what we put the freight in and they, they have different sizes. So you have like an LAK is a small can and an AMX is a huge can and they fit the contour of the plane. So these cans are on rollers and they have like sections on the bottom that help them roll down the plane to make it easier to push them. But if they get stuck, it's a nightmare to get them unstuck, especially on the domestic planes, because you don't have an automated switch helping you. So myself and another employee were in this plane and the last can in the plane was bowed. So I was standing on the can trying to trying to level it out a little bit to get it to where it would catch on the rollers so we could pull it. And we got it to move. So I got off of it and I turned around and I was trying to pull it behind me. And the can went up over the back of my shoe and caught me right on the Achilles tendon. And it took my shoe down and it like wedged my foot between the can and the the floor of the plane. It pressed my heel down while bending my toes up. So it's nothing that my steel toes could have helped. And initially, you know, I thought that it was like many injuries or incidents that happen at DHL and it hurts for a little while and then doesn't hurt anymore. So I didn't immediately turn it in because I figured, you know, it'll be okay. And my lead kind of looks down on anyone that that gets hurt. He kind of, for lack of a better word, he kind of treats you like a sissy or like you're, you know, being a wimp if you, just, if you just get toughen hurt. up. Yeah, basically, yes, you know, kind of tough it out, you know, shake it off kind of thing. So I was, you know, trying to, trying to, you know, continue on and it started to really hurt. So I came down off of the plane, you know, and I was kind of taking it easy. We went to lunch and when we came back from lunch, I was walking down the plane and I just noticed that it just hurt really bad. So I went to the nurse, she treated it as a first aid incident, not an injury, not an incident, just first aid, basically the equivalent is I came there for, you know, a Band-Aid or an ice pack right. or something. So then on Wednesday, I was driving a tug, which is what we use to haul the freight around. It's a little, almost looks like a Tonka truck. And I noticed around lunchtime when I really actually started driving and getting in and out of my tug that my foot just was in an incredible amount of pain. So I went to the nurse's station And I told her what was going on. And she said, you know, I have some people in front of you, so it's going to be a wait. As I'm sitting there waiting for the nurse, I hear a lead or no, actually, I'm sorry. Let me take that back. He was a supervisor. I didn't catch his name or his department, but I heard him tell someone on the phone that he was there for someone's injury. And I heard him say the most appalling sentence. He said, how can I keep this from becoming an injury and just making an incident? So DHL, when they classify injuries and incidents, the incident is something less serious. It just says, hey, this happened. It's not really a big deal, but somebody should know about it. Mm -hmm. When they have an injury, it's more of, hey, somebody got hurt. The man in question had somehow, he'd been hit by a tug. And I believe he said he had a back surgery from it and he hadn't healed up all the way. So they had him on light duty and he re-injured himself on light duty. And the guy was trying to find out how to basically, you know, keep it less serious so it didn't reflect badly on management. I was just flabbergasted. I mean, 
here's your employee. And this guy, from what I understand, is an incredibly hard worker. And, you know, he was injured trying to do his job. And they want to they want to try to sweep it under the rug like he wasn't. I mean, that's just insane to me. You know, that's, that's basic human decency to not want someone to be swept under the rug. But this guy and he said it right out in the open. He was totally unashamed, like, like it was the most normal thing ever. Like he was right. asking someone if they wanted, you know, a piece of candy or something. And I just I felt very disrespected. And I felt bad for the guy because the guy was standing right there. I mean, he heard his manager basically say, you know, this guy doesn't really matter all that much. And it's just just stuff like that, you know, that that I feel like we definitely need to be able to have our voices heard and have have representation. How's your heel? So my heel is doing okay. When I actually went back the second time, they they transferred me from an in- incident to an injury because uh, when I went back the second time, they had noticed that I actually had sprained my ankle. So that's when they moved it from you know just being basic first aid to actually being an injury. They opened a workman's comp case and all of that. So at DHL, they do what's called a job offer. Um, when you're injured and they, they give you something to do that's light duty. So my job offer was, they gave me, they call it stop bar audits and a stop bar is it's out on the ramp. We can't have signs because, you know, a metal sign going through a plane engine would be a terrible thing. (laughs) It's like on the ground at a stop sign. When you see the word stop painted, it's that exact thing. There just isn't a sign there with it. So when when a vehicle comes to a stop bar, they are supposed to honk their horn. They're supposed to come to a complete stop. Uh, you have to document whether they were speeding or not, whether they had on their PPE, their personal protective equipment, and whether they had any distractions, like they were on their cell phone or they had a Bluetooth speaker or something of that sort. So I got that job and... The first day I was on uh, stop bar duty, I was told by safety, which is the person that assigned me to it, that I needed to ask my supervisor for a chair if I wanted a chair. Well, I'm on light duty, so, I mean, it's for my foot. I can't be standing for eight hours. So I asked my supervisor for a chair. At first, he just completely ignored me, did not answer me at all. I then realized that it was his night off, but he actually had come in because he was mandated to work that night. So I asked him for a chair. He didn't answer me. And then I asked another supervisor for a chair. He also didn't answer me. And then I asked my lead, you know, hey, what can I do about this? How can I get how can I get a chair? He said, I don't know anything about it. Now, I've been on the same crew for the whole five years I've been there, and I usually have a very good rapport with with my with my lead. You know, we have we've been we've gotten along very well. I've worked overtime. We've talked about our lives. He's told me about, you know, things that he's had. And I feel like since since I got hurt, I feel like the whole dynamic has changed. I mean, I feel like. I feel forgotten and disrespected. I mean, my crew got food catered in for a 90-day safety thing. (laughs) Ironically, I was not included in that. They have meetings at the beginning of the shift called a pre-shift. I have not been at a pre-shift since I was hurt. My lead will walk right past me and not talk to me. 
my supervisor, I have, I have messages in my phone. I never delete any of my messages and I'm thankful for that. I have messages in my phone where I've sent them five, six, seven, eight texts that have all gone, you know, silent, no, no response, no anything. I'm an open supporter of the Teamster union. And I, I just feel like, you know, since I started wearing my Teamster vest and since I have been injured, I've, I just feel like I'm a nobody. I mean, I feel like I'm invisible half the time and it's, it's totally jaded my whole opinion of working there. I mean, before I mean, I've made like $5,000 in referral bonuses because I love working there. And I tell everybody I meet like, Oh, you need a job, come to DHL. It's a great place to work. But now I just feel like I've been so disrespected that I don't know that I want to tell people that anymore. You know, I feel like if they're going to treat me like that after five years, five years doesn't sound that long, but on the ramp, it might as well be 20. Mm-hmm. You know, you talk to people and people in lead positions say, you know, I've been here for two years. I've been here for a year and a half. I've been here for three years. I've been there for five years. There should be no reason they know my work ethic. They know, you know, my attitude towards my job. And I just feel like all of that has changed. And I don't feel like a simple article of clothing showing support for something they say that we should be able to have should change that whole dynamic. And Fightmaster, you've also been kind of publicly supportive of the union. What, what's been the response from, from managers and supervisors to that? It's been a lot of har- harassment and intimidation. Not always directly, you know, I mean, I personally, I've been followed um, off of the property by corporate security and the, and the security contractors. I've, I've been followed to my, my place of residence. I've been followed to union meetings. They're stepping up and increased security outside so that it's harder for us to uh, talk to our coworkers in our, our parking lots. You know, from my understanding, they just hired a bunch. Uh, I, I believe the number was 20 new security guards to, to help patrol out there. And so what's the organizing like? How much help are you getting from kind of Teamsters folks from the outside and how much of it is done being done kind of organically by workers who are, you know, already inside the airport? I think the, the vast and not to downplay what anybody in this is doing cuz it's it's a team effort, right? But just kind of in, in any organizing situation, the the vast majority has to come from it organically from the workers. Otherwise, it's never going to be successful, right? So, I mean, we we have a, an organizing committee. There are several of us that are are, are talking um, and, and trying to get things together, and we're working with workers inside every night. And while we're inside, you know, um, in our crew vans uh, on breaks, we're we're talking to folks. You know, we're in the parking lots. Um, trying to talk to our coworkers before and after our shifts. Yeah. What are the counter arguments that you hear from people? Like when you, when you approach them and say, you know, we need, we need to organize, you don't have a date yet, uh, but it does look like, you know, there's going to be an election at at some point. What do people say when you, in in general, when you're uh, suggesting that you unionize? There's a ton of fear out there still. There have been failed organizing campaigns at at DHL in the past, um, never with the Teamsters Union, my understanding. Um, and some of the people that have been there a long time are, are afraid uh, for that reason, right? Because it's failed in the past. And I think really that's that's the biggest obstacle we have right now is, is just the fear um, that's been created um, and, and persists because of the atmosphere there that the company's created. You know, they, they can put out these things where they say they respect our, our right to organize. They can talk all these great things, but in reality, I mean, when when you hear management referring to the employees as inmates 
when when you yeah. see the the increased security when you see them patrolling and, and coming up to to you know myself and my coworkers as we're talking to other people in the parking lot you know their words and their actions don't align just so people know what you're talking about there was a there was a report in the guardian that a manager kind of quit his job in management because he uh, he was angry that his fellow supervisors were referring to workers at the at the airport as inmates and themselves as wardens who needed to you know get them under control and squash this this union drive had you heard that from anybody else before it was reported in the guardian i, I would assume that the supervisors are not saying that around the workers that that's the kind of thing that they're just saying kind of in back rooms yeah i mean you would think that that would only happen in back rooms right the reality is is that i have heard things like that and including that itself nearly since I started. How so? How would, how would that come out? As a lead, part of the equipment that I have to go uh, and grab is in the office where a lot of the managers are um, and supervisors are, and they talk openly. Um, just not really, there's such a level of, of disrespect towards us that they don't, they don't care to hide it. They don't care to try and only say things like that behind our backs. I mean, I've been there maybe two months um, by the time I had heard, you know, a, a supervisor or a manager refer to hourly uh, employees as as inmates or, or, or whatever else, whatever other disparaging names um, that they think of to call us. And then they'll turn around and say, well, we're a family and, you know, we have this great culture here. And then they'll continue to uh, just blatantly disrespect us. And it's really unfortunate that it takes us coming coming together and trying to form a union, trying to become Teamsters to get the respect and dignity that every man and woman in this country deserves in the workplace. And so, Brandy, one of those like so he mentioned the the fear of losing, you know, because, you know, you go for, you know, you go, come for the king and you miss you're in trouble. What about some of the other kind of propaganda that you often hear from management that, oh, things will be worse, actually, if you get a union, the dues, and and you're not going to have the same kind of freedoms on the workplace. Like, do you ever hear that from other workers or like what, what types of responses have you been getting from people? It's almost like you work at DHL. You're so accurate <laughs> with what you're saying. My personal experience, even just to touch back on what, what Steven said, my own lead Back in, I think it was December, we had just started wearing Teamster vests out on the ramp and management had decided that it was not part of the dress code. However, I've literally never in my five years seen the dress code. So um, my supervisor came to me and told me I wasn't allowed to wear my vest. And my lead had just finished a meeting in which he told us that basically to summarize what he said and not, you know, make a make a long story out of it. He said that unions before when they had come in had failed and everyone that had signed a card or showed that they were openly supportive of the union was terminated. He put that fear into not only myself but my entire crew. So there are roughly 10 people on my crew and out of those 10, myself and, and my nephew also works there. So we are, we are supporters. We're open supporters. We wear our vest. We wear our Teamsters bracelet. We were the only people that, that were even daring, shall I say, to 
show support because everyone else was afraid that, you know, they would be terminated or that they would be ostracized or treated differently. And some of the other things that I've heard is people are afraid that, oh, if we get the union, they're going to take away the lead positions and they're going to take away overtime and they're going to make it to where, you know, people that don't work and don't do their jobs basically are treated better than the people that are working and doing their jobs. And it's just a lot of propaganda, honestly. I mean, it's just, it's just management thinking of anything they can say to kind of make the employees, again, to come back to it and circle around scared, uh, scared they'll lose their rights, scared that they'll, you know, have a harder time at work. And it comes down at the end of the day to DHL still has product to get out. They still have, they still have jobs to be done. The union isn't some, you know, outside force that comes in. The union is us. And if you're not going to vote to have your rights taken away or your wages decreased or your vacation time decreased, they can't do that. They don't just say, this is what happens. It's not a dictatorship. And so if I imagine, if you, if you think about things at a national kind of 30,000 foot level, you'll hear economists and politicians talking about the way that kind of full employment, you know, which, you know, once they've pushed unemployment down below uh, 4%, they start calling that full unemployment, which you know, kind of means that if, if somebody, you know, is not, uh, is not a felon and is, you know, remotely qualified for a job, they can, they can find a job. You know, there are more jobs than there are uh, job seekers. Now there are millions of people, you know, who, because of criminal justice laws, et cetera, are locked out of that workforce. But within the people who are trying to participate in the workforce, they'll say, look, there's more jobs than there are people looking for jobs, which is way different than, you know, say 10, 10 years ago when you had, you know, five, six people competing for every job opening. If you've got a lot of people competing for every opening, then it becomes much harder to talk people into joining a union. So I'm curious if you're seeing the the effect of full employment, and Brandy, I'm curious for your take too, but start with you, Fightmaster. Like if you're seeing the effect of full employment kind of put some steel in the spine of workers there saying like, you know what, let's go for it because they need us here. There's a labor shortage. They can't just easily push us out and replace us. Or is there so much precarity just generally in life and in the workforce that that isn't really a, a factor at this point? I think it goes kind of both ways and it depends on, you know, who you're talking to. For me, I mean, I definitely kind of come from more of that line of thinking. You know, they absolutely do need us to do their job. You know, we 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 handle a vast majority of the freight that comes through the Americas at the CBG hub. We're extremely important to DHL's global business model, um, and and they're 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 making record profits, just like almost every other Fortune 500 company in the world. They absolutely need us. That being said, I mean the the way we're treated out there, we're just numbers to the company, and I definitely think that's felt. You know, I mean things that aren't necessarily your fault or things that you can't necessarily control, you can be punished for. If you get injured and they think you didn't do something properly, I mean, you're getting written up, you're getting disciplined uh, for getting hurt at work. So there, there's definitely a, a fine line of, you know, we, we definitely realize that we have that power and that kind of the momentum just generally in the country, I think, is in our favor. But at the same time, just the, the daily environment we work in tends to push back on that. 
because they're they're completely fine to run us ragged, run us short staffed, give us too much to do that can be done safely with the amount of people that we have. Yeah, Brandy, what do you think? Is the national labor shortage a low unemployment rate empowering folks? Do you feel a, a stronger sense of kind of power in the workplace than you did, say, five, 10 years ago? I agree a lot with what Fightmaster said. I feel like at DHL, there is a high turnover rate anyway. I feel like there shouldn't be because the job we do is, it's a good job. It's a needed job. When the pandemic hit, I mean, we were absolutely essential to getting supplies to people, to, you know, shipping face masks and and gloves and COVID tests and everything like that. I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to sound like, you know, I'm trying to make us heroes or anything, but. Well, that's what everybody was saying then. Yeah. I mean, if, if DHL wasn't running, if we weren't there putting in the hours, doing the work, you know, running short staff with entire crews off for COVID or, you know, if we weren't doing that, the country wouldn't have been able to function. And I feel like for us having such important roles, such necessary roles, we're just treated with such disregard. Like they basically want to pretend that like Fightmaster said, we're just numbers, you know? I mean, they give us all an employee number and sometimes I almost feel like their analogy about the prison thing, I almost feel like it is accurate in their eyes because, you know, on documents you write your name, but you also write your number. And it, it just makes me feel like that is all we are is a number. And, you know, 1054264 can be replaced by 1054265. You know, that we're all replaceable, you know, and we're not we're not that important. But I feel like once we have our voice, once we can say what we need to say without worrying about being, you know, bullied or being fearful, I feel like, you know, we'll be able to stand up and make the changes that we need to make people feel respected, to make people feel like they're not just a number, that they are part of a team and part of a, honestly, we're around these people so much, they're like our family, so part of a family. There's also an Amazon warehouse nearby that's going through directly across the street or organizing (laughs) drive. Yeah. Is there any interplay uh, between the people organizing that and you guys? Are you kind of trading tips and tricks or anything? I've got a a couple of friends that work over there that I talk to from time to time, just kind of about, you know, what's going on on their side and what's going on on our side. Um, I think the the biggest difference is, from my understanding, they're they're not going with the Teamsters Union for whatever reason. They're Amazon Labor Union, is that right? The crew that organized the Staten Island one, is that right? Yeah, and so, um, you know, I I wish nothing but the best of luck to those folks over there. We need more organized labor in this country, especially when it comes to these super corporations. We handle a lot of Amazon freight at DHL. A lot of their international shipments uh, will will carry for them. I think it's it's hugely important that the the men and women across the street also get a contract. That's very true. And so, how how, how optimistic do you guys feel about the the coming election? I feel like we're definitely definitely on track with where we should be. I feel like it's going to be great. I feel like if people stop being afraid and stop feeling that uh, they're alone and and recognize the unity and the numbers. I feel like people are going to come out in droves when they finally feel like they're they're actually free from free from concern about being fired. I feel like they'll 
they'll see the numbers and see that there is a lot of support and they won't be afraid to come out. They won't be afraid of being, you know, um, singled out as a single unit when we all stand as a united front. I'm very optimistic. I, I wish we had a date and a time already. Yes. But I mean, we, we filed for this election on uh, September 13th of last year. They've done everything they can up to this point to uh, drag it out as long as possible. So I'm not surprised we still don't have an election date, but we'll get there. And, and before long, before anyone knows it, we'll, we'll be at the bargaining table. It's been a long wait, but it's definitely going to be worth it for the, for the prize at the end of the race. Well, uh, Brandy, uh, Fight Master, best of luck to you when the election is called. We'll continue to follow this. And thanks so much uh, for joining me. Excellent. Thank you for having us. And uh, I'd just like to also say, we don't need luck. You don't need luck when you're good <laughs> and it's the right thing to do. Yeah. There thank, you go. Thank you all very much for having us. We uh, definitely appreciate, appreciate the platform and the time. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs, also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. After years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if we've learned anything, it's that there's always a catch. So when I heard that Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, I thought, what's the catch? But after talking to them, it all made sense. There isn't one. Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they sell wireless service online. They cut out the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. With Mint Mobile, you get great wireless service at a fraction of the cost of other providers. Say bye-bye to your overpriced wireless plans, jaw-dropping monthly bills and unexpected overages. All plans come with unlimited talk and text, plus high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash deconstructed. That's mintmobile.com slash deconstructed. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month 
at mintmobile.com slash deconstructed. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. That was Brandy Dale and Stephen Fightmaster. So we searched through NLRB filings, and we found 16 open complaints against DHL in Kentucky, including three retaliatory dismissal complaints filed by the union. We invited DHL to appear on the podcast, but the company declined, instead sending a lengthy statement, which I'll include at the end of the show. But next, we're joined by Alex Press, a labor reporter for Jacobin. Alex, welcome to Deconstructed. Thanks for having me, Ryan. And so you have this great new piece out in Jacobin on the UAW reform movement. I wanted to start by reading a little uh, piece of it to you and ask you to kind of unpack where this this tension that you witnessed is coming from. And you might know the part I'm talking about, but I'll just I'll just read it here. You say, yes. <laughs> not everyone was happy about the unprecedentedly democratic nature of the convention. Late one evening, I was speaking with a well-known reformer. We had been interrupted repeatedly by fellow delegates who wanted to shake his hand some of whom were supporters of the old guard but wanted to show the respect. But one man approached us and quickly became belligerent. When the reformer calmly responded, saying, Okay, thank you, brother. The man shouted, I'm not your brother. Don't ever call me your brother. He made his opinions about the reform caucus clear, quote, Fuck you and fuck that UAWD shit and go to hell. So what is the UAWD and why does this guy want it to go to hell? Great questions. So the UAWD is, it stands for Unite All Workers for Democracy. It's an internal union caucus that formed in 2019. Now, the context is in the UAW, for about 70 years, there's been one caucus. It's called the Administration Caucus. Um, It was formed by um, the UAW's most famous president, Walter Reuther. And it has ruled the union with an iron fist, basically. People call it one-party rule, right? There's never been real challengers to that. Um, And part of how that was maintained was there weren't direct elections for leadership. It was a system where delegates elected leadership, and that system, for reasons that probably will be a little too boring to get into here, was, was very rife with, like, favoritism and kind of was rigged in certain ways that allowed this caucus to always win every leadership election. Now, in 2019... UAWD formed and pushed for something that a few people had, you know, had been, they weren't the ones to come up with this idea, of course, but it was for direct elections for higher leadership. Um, So that was their goal, was direct elections, more democracy. Um, And because of, you know, they'll they'll go into it as they thought they could win it through constitutional measures, um, they'll tell you, but then COVID hit and that sort of hurt their momentum But then a federal monitor who'd been appointed, um, you know, to sort of oversee reforms within the UAW, thanks to an incredible corruption uh, scandal that has been ongoing and has landed two of the union's former presidents in jail. Um, That monitor directed the union to have a referendum about one member, one vote, direct elections. That passed. um, And so the result was this new president that had been sworn in one day before the convention I was writing about. You know, the UAWD ran to challenge for seven seats, and they won all of them. Um, And so that guy, all of which is a lot of important context to say that that meeting in a convention lobby in which I'm speaking to a reformer and a guy comes up and gets extremely belligerent, it's because, you know, he sort of sees which way the wind is blowing within his union, 
And a lot of these guys who were at that convention and who supported the old guard, right, the the administration caucus, they'd spent decades really like building those relationships, showing their loyalty in hopes that they'd get more resources or maybe a union staff job. And so there, there, there's real reason for them to be extremely upset, as is shown in that paragraph in which the guy, you know, almost comes to a, <laughs> a fist fight with my interview subject. And you also have a cool moment in the piece where uh, there are some UAW union members who are working on a pension amendment, basically, that they're going to put forward, a pension promotion. And a Harvard graduate comes up and kind of helps them with, with the wording. And, and she says like up front, like, hey, I'm probably not going to need this pension, which is a nice acknowledgement of the, the career track that she's probably going to have. But let me help you out anyway. And it's a reminder that, you ha- that the UAW has become this kind of uh, diverse union that pulls in different workforces. And it also, I had kind of forgotten, I almost became a, a UAW member um, back in the early 2000s when I was in graduate school. There was a union drive going on at the University of Maryland where I was, where mm-hmm. I was, and I, be, I was the shop steward for our uh, our drive in our public policy department. We we had I was a shop steward there, and we had over ninety percent cards signed because people there were like, "Uh, union, uh, more power, more better, better hours, better wages sounds good. To, sounds good to me." Elsewhere, when I would try to organize the philosophy department or history or whatever, it would it would just be a complete nightmare because they wanted to argue with you constantly about the kind of a, the nature of a union. You get into the sciences like engineering and math. Just you just explain to them what the situation is like. Okay, sounds good. I'll sign the card. And we actually had a UAW staffer who, like, we had an office and one, you know, one person that they had sent down to, to help us. Uh, we ended up never succeeding in actually pulling it off. It's it's incredibly difficult. You know, it was illegal in the state of Maryland to even do it. So we had to lobby the legislature and on and on. It, it, I really did learn how how insane it is to try to organize this union. But it also reminded me that the history of the UAW has been kind of this this complex and this overlapping in, in different social movements basically since the beginning. And you, you touch a little bit of uh, in your piece about their role in the civil rights movement and their role even in supporting students for a democratic society. Can you talk a little bit about how that history at least made it so that this type of reform movement had something that it could grab onto? Yeah, definitely. And, you know, I'll just say that I also was part of the early days of a UAW grad union at Northeastern University. How'd that go? (laughs) We have still not won official recognition. Uh, I say we, you know, I left many years ago, which is why it feels like ancient history. Um, But but it likewise was an incredibly sort of formative experience for me. I mean, it's it's largely how I wound up becoming a labor reporter um, is I, you know, I'd long been on the left, but I'd never really been in a union. And seeing that process and how tedious it is and also how much how much more interesting it is to speak to new people and win them over versus kind of preaching to the choir which is, you know, what's required when you're union organizing. Mm-hmm. You have to just talk to the other people that work for the same person, um, many of whom are not going to agree with you. You know, that basically won me to a lifelong commitment to the labor movement. So just to say that I think that's a, a common story for a lot of people who may no longer be in higher ed, um, that, you know, it was their grad union that kind of mm-hmm. formed their this new understanding people have about labor unions in the United States. Anyway... 
Yes, what you said is um, is correct. You know, the UAW, you know, I, I, I brought that up because people do think it's, you know, they think it's sort of odd bedfellows for grad students and auto workers to share a union, right? And they're not wrong that there are some tensions involved. I mean, it sort of it was there were comical moments throughout the convention around miscommunication and things. Um, but at the same time, as you said, you know, it's not new for the UAW to welcome young people in who might not be sort of the traditional image of an auto worker. Um, as I mentioned in the piece, you know, the founding statement for Students for Democratic for Society, SDS, their Port Huron statement, Port Huron was like a UAW summer camp, right? A lot of the leaders of that organization were the children of UAW members and UAW officials. Um, that's why they ended up there. Um, and, you know, likewise, ditto during the March on Washington, you know, R Walter Ruther spoke at that. Um, I believe he was the only white guy who spoke at that <laughs> during that day. Um, him and Martin Luther King. And they King. were major financiers of it too, right? Yes, yes. Martin Luther King and him were friends and they spent quite a bit of money on all kinds of aspects from the sound system to, you know, signs and all kinds of other things. Um, quite, they footed the bill, basically. Um, and, you know, the leadership of the UAW back then, not that they all agreed all the time on this, but they felt that it was distinctly important because they they felt that the sort of future of the labor movement and of the working class in the United States was intimately bound up with the future of the civil rights movement and black workers' rights in particular. Um, and that was a forward-thinking sort of analysis. It's something I agree with, right? That if, if workers are able to be divided around race in particular, that's going to weaken every worker's working conditions. It's going to destroy unions. You know, the history here is very clear on that in the United States. Um, and so the UAW over time has sort of lost those roots. And the interesting thing about this, this growing number of grad student members is that those are the kind of people who would sort of be taking, for a variety of reasons, sort of the, a leading role in sort of the left-wing movements of this of the current moment. And so by bringing them into the union, it sort of starts rebuilding um, that question of what would it look like to take a sort of more political role um, that the UAW once, once held. How influential are the grad students inside UAW? Would, would the reform movement have been able to prevail without them? Yeah, I mean, so this is a, is a fraught question. You know, they actually, the numbers are really interesting here that they had incredibly low turnout for the leadership election that saw Sean Fain, who we haven't discussed yet, um, win the presidency. And it was a very close election. You know, he won after a, a sort of runoff, you know, revote. Um, he won by something like, I think the number now, there's a couple ballots still contested, but it's less than 500 votes, right? Which is very convenient because, of course, then we can all say, well, it was this local that did it. It was those grad students. Right. It was this auto plant. Yeah. Um, but the truth is that, of course, like the grad student members did play a role. But interestingly, you know, in California, which is home to one of the biggest higher ed locals for the UAW, that was an administration caucus sort of strength, stronghold. Um, and so, you know, vote was very low there. Leadership tried to sort of keep... Um, Sean Fain and the reformers um, kind of momentum small. And so it's actually hard to say that all of the grad students, you know, are like the progressives. Um, and but at the, at the same time, I spoke to, you know, a fair number of manufacturing workers, auto workers, 
um, who are very much reformers. And they said that the grad students did help them, right? I mean, in the way that that anecdote points to, where that Harvard grad student is speaking with an auto worker about a resolution they're working on to pass around, you know, restoring pensions for auto workers. And the grad student, you know, it's, it's very concrete. The grad student knew what page to cite because she, as she says in the piece, she, quote, does her homework, mm-hmm. which was a very funny turn of phrase for a grad student to say. Um, and so that sort of thing, it's less that they're like directing in some sort of nefarious or organized way a, a different UAW. And it's more like they just have certain organizational skills that I think at least a, a lot of reformers I spoke to um, were very impressed by. There is one funny anecdote I'll say that's not in the piece, which is, you know, a, a, another reporter had been trying to speak to the administration caucus supporters um, and had been failing to do so. You know, you'll notice in my piece, there are basically no interviews with them. They did not want to speak to to media at all, but certainly not to me, um, a Jacobin magazine <laughs> writer. Um And but so this other reporter, you know, had also failed to get quotes and she happened to run into a few of them of the people that she had been trying to speak to at the gate at the airport on her way out of town, out of Detroit. And so she did start chatting with them. I have no idea whether those quotes made it into her piece, but the administration caucus people were, you know, they still hated the UAWD. They had things to say about that, but they sort of by the end of the conversation grudgingly admitted, you know, something like, we do love the higher ed, those higher ed kids. Like they were sort of impressed by the way they could organize, mm-hmm. um, even if they didn't like what they were organizing for. Um, and so I think that sort of sums up the dynamic that people are kind of working through right now within the union. Yeah, I liked the one quote that you had in here where you got this uh, Vic- Vic- uh, worker named Vicente says, uh, as an auto worker in manufacturing, when I found out that we have grad students, I was shocked. Then I also thought, why have we never talked to these dudes? You hear the words Harvard graduate, and it's like, oh, my God, these are the most highly educated people in the world. We should be tapping into that resource. Then you meet them, and they have a wealth of knowledge, and they've been able to help us to try to organize ourselves, which kind of, it all kinds of subverts the kind of flat understanding that we kind of impute to the relationships between, like, working people, uh, Ivy Leagues, grad students. Like, it's 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 more, you know, it's more complicated and and kind of, Mix, mixed in with some type of appreciation for maybe what, you know, what can, what can we get out of this? How, you know, how can we get an advantage by linking up um, with these, with these folks? I mean, I'll just, I'll just say in closing here on this topic that, you know, I think the general dynamic that that's at play right now in the UAW with all of these reformers ascendant um, and with these changes afoot in the union is it's really not to get too sort of dogmatic Marxists use some old language here. It's really a process of class formation going on right now. The question is, you know, the watchword of the entire convention was unity. And that wasn't just about, you know, unity between the caucuses, right? Unity between the old guard and the new guard so that they're not a divided union. But a lot of these people really want unity as the working class. Um, And that might sound silly or neat, but that's really the stakes of what they're doing right now. And when you see quotes like from that guy, Dan Vicente, who is, you know, was a elected to lead. He's the, now the Region 9 director for the UAW, which is puts him on the International Executive Board. He's one of the reformers who and he was elected straight from the shop floor of a of a manufacturing plant in Western Pennsylvania. Um, and so I thought his perspective on this was really interesting. 
But those workers that have you know, been taking the lead in the UAW now, they really want to know how do we unite workers across divides, whether that's race, sector, age, you know, anything to build power that has been you know, completely clawed away or even given up in the sake of the UAW by corrupt leadership. And so quotes like that are not just about this particular issue, but really the vision that is being fought for right now. And you also touch on another kind of contradiction that is working its way out too. And there's a good quote from a worker in here that says, I know that I have a vested interest in keeping gasoline engines around as long as possible because there are a lot of jobs involved, which touches on the old climate versus labor argument. And But what's underneath that is the ease with which workers can kind of build electric vehicles is so much greater than the, the complex process required for a combustion engine and that's at the front end but also then when it comes to you know mechanics repair repairing them as well you look at an ev it's like it's like four wheels and a battery basically <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, where, whereas you look you know you pop the hood on on your old car you stare at that thing you're like there's no way i could ever figure anything out that's going on in here absolutely uh and so how high a priority is kind of the ev space for this this new militant uaw I think it's a really big priority. It came up a lot. And, you know, it's one of the things Sean Slate, you know, I haven't gone into much about Sean, but to be clear, Sean is a member of the UAWD um, and he really acts like one. He does not act like they're there to help him. He really, you know, at one point in the convention said, I'm so proud to be a member of this caucus and teared up, right? So this guy is a serious reformer. He's a member of that group. Um, and one of their priorities during the election and now as well is about in sh- finding a way to not only organize those the EV plants that are going to be, you know, that's going to be where job growth is coming in coming years as the, that transition happens, but where they're organized as well, also putting them in the big three master agreement that the UAW has that, you know, a lot of people are going to be familiar with that the big three auto agreement, you know, used to be this sort of historic kind of signal in the United States of this is what manufacturing workers are going to be able to kind of base their demands around whatever the, the Detroit auto workers can win at the bargaining table. That contract still exists, though, of course, it is less of a sort of pace setter than it used to be. And yet, the, the big three automakers have managed to basically find ways to carve out their EV plants and EV jobs from coming under that master agreement. Um, part it's, you know, it's, it's very complicated and I'll, I'm, I'll be honest, I'm not an expert on how this is working, but part of it is, is that sort of battery plants and things are joint ventures. And so say a Ford will be like, well, it's not really our plant. It's this other thing. Um, and the UAW's prior leadership did not fight hard um, to to sort of push back against that. Um, so that's going to be a big priority. And it was something that all kinds of people brought up to me um, as from Sean Fain down to the rank and file. That guy you quoted who works in a Jeep Wrangler plant. Um, it's something that's on everyone's mind. And again, it does sort of bring up these broader questions about if the UAW can play a political role. You know, if we're talking about EV plants and, you know, the wrench turners like that guy, we also start thinking about the, you know, what is a Green New Deal? Where does the UAW sort of play a role in broader environmental questions? And that contract, that four-year 
contract is up in September, and we're, so we're probably going to see a you know a pretty significant fight around that, particularly with this you know newly energized uh, UAW. But I want to talk about the Teamsters as well because they've been going through a similar process. They've got th- this major UPS contract coming up this summer that that could end up dominating the news at, at some point, and. They had their own. They have their own reform caucus that, that you that you touch on in the story. The TDU Teamsters for a Democratic Union that has been kind of pushing against the, the Teamsters leadership uh, for years, uh, and ended up endorsing a, endorsing a candidate, Sean O'Brien, who won. Now he's not a member of the TDU, but they they had allied. So who? Who is who is Sean who is Sean O'Brien and how does he differ differ from uh, Sean Fain? By the way, Sean Fain, what an what an amazing name, by the way. <laughs> it's incredible. I mean, I I keep joking that I'm so glad I spent seven years in Boston because it's really prepared me <laughs> for the fact that the two most exciting developments are you know are being driven by kind of middle-aged uh, Irish-American guys um, winning yeah. the leadership of the big the big manufacturing and blue-collar unions. Yeah, so Sean Fain, you know, from, from the UAW, very much was a kind of like, you know, he had been first a local leader in Kokomo, Indiana, um, and then was moved on to the union staff, but he was not really like a... He was not super powerful, right? He was just kind of a part of the middle layer, as I've been calling it, of leadership in the UAW. Sean O'Brien, by contrast, very much comes out of what, you know, a lot of people who don't follow labor are still familiar with, which is Jimmy Hoffa's regime. Um, You know, Hoffa's son was the leader of the union um, for a long time. And Sean O'Brien was a very loyal lieutenant of, of Hoffa Jr.'s. Um, he comes out at Local 25 in Boston, um, so that's his home base. Um, but he had moved up to basically, you know, he was the he was supposed to be the lead negotiator for the UPS contract nationally last time it was negotiated, and that is where he started to break with that regime, right? It was it's sort of the, his ascension is a bit like a palace coup in certain ways because he so was an insider, um, and the reason he broke with his former boss is that, you know, the UPS contract that Hoffa negotiated last time was very, very bad. Um, it introduced new tiers into the contract, which are basically the, a death sentence for a union. You know, it means different pay for equal work, um, breeds resentment, all kinds of problems. Um, and it had a, a, a variety of other issues as well. Now the membership, which, the UPS contract is the largest union contract um, in the private sector in the United States. It covers now it covers almost 350,000 workers. So this is a huge number of people. Um, it's every UPS driver as well as everyone who works inside um, UPS buildings. You know, dealing with the packages and, and sorting and so on. Um, so the membership last time voted that contract down which took an incredible amount of organizing, including by TDU, the group you mentioned, the Teamsters Reform Caucus. But the result was not that they got to go back to the table and negotiate a better contract. It was Hoffa invoked a very arcane um, sort of measure from the Teamsters Constitution to force the workers um, to accept the contract. So he overrode democracy. And as I say, as sort of demonstrate or try to in that piece, 
it really was a sense of betrayal. You know, a lot of UPS workers and a lot of Teamsters knew at that point that they'd already known Hoffa was not a perfect union leader. They knew he had problems. He was way too close with the bosses. But to have him fully override their voice here and force a bad contract down their throat basically was the end for Hoffa. So Sean O'Brien is one of the people who sort of takes the lead on denouncing all of the things that are going on here with this contract. He breaks from his former ally, and then he announces he's running for leadership, and he wins. And so that is where we are now, is we are going into that new UPS contract negotiation, and it's what you know Sean O'Brien ran on, that he would undo the tears, that it would be the best contract ever negotiated, and so it, and it holds this incredible kind of gravity within the union because it's exactly why they got Hoffa out um, and Hoffa's, you know, successors out. And so there's a lot riding on this, not just, you know, in the broader economic sense for the country because it's such a gigantic contract, but also for the internal politics of that union. And I, my sense is that Sean O'Brien's base of power really is coming from the reform uh, caucus, because correct me if I'm remembering this wrong. I feel like so he was tasked with basically leading the U, the UPS negotiations, and Hoffa ordered him not to put these TDU guys onto the bargaining team that had criticized Hoffa in the past. And O'Brien did it anyway and said, "No, like I want to involve the the TDU in this so that we we've got rank and file support." And either he got booted off the bargaining team as a result or quit in protest but that like that was the thing that triggered it and then he ends up kind of speaking at the tdu convention and really linking up with them which would mean that that's even though he's a you know a hoffa stooge from way back in the day his actual power today derives from from those rank and file workers is that a fair assessment of like what the kind of politics of it are now yeah, I would say so. I mean, again, Sean O'Brien is a little different than Sean Fain in that it's so funny that these guys have these <laughs> similar names. Yeah. Uh, so Sean O'Brien, but you're right that it's largely his power as far as carrying out a successful strike would come from these rank and file militants, not all of whom are in TDU for reasons that are a little mm -hmm. too complicated to get into, but certainly a lot <laughs> are. Um, but also, you know, Sean, at least in winning the election, part of it was that he managed to, I said palace coup, because he kind of managed to split off certain of the kind of like old guard leadership who saw, again, which way the wind was blowing or had had enough. You know, they weren't le out leading in their criticisms about, you know, the problems in the union, but they w did have frustrations and finally saw a chance to like break off and actually win some reform. Um, so those, you know, he still has some support from those guys, too. Um, which makes the dynamic a little more complicated than, say, the UAW dynamic. Um, but it's certainly the case that, yeah, as I mentioned in the piece, you know, he knows that TDU and him needed each other, and they still need each other in the in the lead up to this to the negotiations, which are starting in about a week and a half, I think, for the UPS contract. Um, it expires at the very end of July um, to give people a timeline, um, and there are definitely TDU people. Um, who are helping with planning, you know, the negotiations. And key, not even is to TDU, but really the rank and file more generally. Um, so Sean pledged that there would be rank and file members on the negotiating committee 
which is not what used to happen. Um, and so it's that sort of like, you know, his power is going to come from whether he can really win back his rank and file members to be engaged in the process, not only because that's the right thing to do and it's democratic, but because to pull off a strike at UPS um, is going to take, you know, that's what the piece is about. It takes an incredible amount of kind of engagement and preparation that cannot be done. You know, there's no shortcut from the top down. You know, UPS is spread out across the country. The locals are incredibly uneven. You know, this is not a traditional workplace. You got to get your your UPS drivers in Iowa and Idaho to be just as able to strike as the ones in New York City or Chicago. And so that process really needs to be kind of bottom up um, if you're going to pull off a strike. In the meantime, two workers for DHL in the uh, basically the Cincinnati, you know, Cincinnati airport on the border of kind of Kentucky and, and Ohio. There's a Teamster drive going there that there's some dispute about the size of the bargaining unit it could be anywhere between like 900 and 1200 workers and Teamsters, the Teamsters already represent a decent number of DHL, you know, hubs and workers around the country. And just across the parking lot from there is a gigantic, uh, Amazon fulfillment center as, the, as they call them, uh, which is a target of kind of the, the, the Amazon labor union, which organized the, the Staten Island, uh, warehouse to, to so much kind of national, uh, fanfare about a year ago. Uh, so can you talk, can you explain to folks a little bit about how you wind up with say Teamsters organizing one hub, uh, ALU kind of organizing another one, UAW coming in and organizing something else. Uh, and uh, also can you give us an update on the, on the Staten Island, uh, organizing drive that we heard about a year ago? Yeah, a lot of questions. Uh, yes, I mean, generally in the United States, this question of like turf and is very confusing to people who are kind of new to the labor movement. It, it's correct that the Teamsters represent like 6,000 DHL workers across the country. And so they're trying to sort of aggressively add to that. Um, and it seems like with very good reason. I mean, I was reading about the working conditions these workers are speaking of. And it's, I mean, these are brutal jobs, right? Grueling, mm -hmm. incredible awful temperatures, whether hot or cold, you know, all kinds of reasons to want to organize. Um, and, you know, it happens that, you know, with Amazon, part of the reason that a the ALU came into existence is that there was a lot of, you know, I'd been writing about Amazon for many years. It was sort of my, my hobby horse was that to the labor movement, we have to figure out what, what we're doing here, folks. This is about to be the biggest employer in the United States and no union will touch it, you know, aren't we just setting ourselves up to for, for further decline? And, you know, there were many good reasons that unions didn't want to touch Amazon. People had tried here and there and seen how hard it was in the past. Um, and the answer I often would hear is, look, there are so many other unions, organized workplaces that have all but dead, you know, sort of unions, right, that they're, they're operating, the union has, is in decline, it, it has members, but it's basically doing nothing. Isn't it better for us to focus our energy in reviving those unions, um, rather than taking something on that we're almost certain to fail at? And that's a, I mean, they had a really good point. I mean, it's certainly the case that this is still true today. And I'm, I'm saying it because I think almost any Amazon organizer will tell you the same thing. You're almost certain to fail at organizing Amazon. Um, this is true for the ALU. This is true for even the Teamsters. You know, it's so hard for reasons that we can't go into here. 
That said, it's why, so all of that to say that, you know, when you have someone like Chris who had something happen to him that, you know, as a mix of the time that it happened, you know, when he was fired in response to sort of helping organize a protest around um, COVID. And you're talking about Chris Smalls, the ALU organizer, yeah. Yeah. So for a variety of reasons, some relate to the moment he was in COVID, others relate to the fact that this became a national media story because Amazon's leadership said really hard, horrible things about him. And in part because of his own personality, if you'll meet Chris, you'll understand this one. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, he decided to, this was it. He was going to try to take on and do the impossible. So, but you get that sort of random independent union, entirely worker-led, but also totally isolated from existing unions. You get that because of this longstanding kind of reticence from existing unions to touch Amazon, which led to a lot of resentment by Amazon workers, including, you know, Chris Smalls, the first time I talked to him. The question always was, why haven't, where are the unions? Why don't they help us? Um, And so that's how you get where we are today. And it seems like Amazon has launched a pretty effective counterattack on the Staten Island warehouse that sounds like they're just refusing to ever come to the bargaining table. What What can organizers do to like force that or can... Amazon just dragged this out indefinitely. So, you know, there are varying opinions on this one. I mean, there's basically, there's two, it's a two-pronged fight that a union like the ALU can wage. One is external. They need to launch, you know, there need to be organizing campaigns at so many other Amazon facilities across the country that it sort of becomes this like fire. You know, there's too many fires to put out. And Amazon both has to focus on those other facilities, but also kind of like how we are seeing at Starbucks is kind of the parallel right now. Not that Starbucks workers have a contract, but there is a sense of momentum there that like, you know, I hope I'm I hope I'm correct in saying this. But, you know, it's it's going to be very hard for them to ever get a contract in the same way. But there's a sense that, come on, it has to happen, right? There's so many people at Starbucks who have, who have voted for unions. So that sort of sense of if, uh, pressure. Internally, what a union like the ALU can do is start building up their rank-and-file strength towards basically getting strong enough to be able to strike for recognition. Um, the ALU is a long way from that. And for there are many good reasons for that, of course. It's very hard to organize a, a giant Amazon warehouse. When you really have to show the company that, you know, they're never going to do it unless they're forced. And so you have to figure out how to force them. And stopping work at a key facility like that is about the only way you can force them. So it's the inside, outside kind of two focuses here. Um, And that's going to be true at at any Amazon facility, really. But certainly JFK 8 in Staten Island um, is going to be the test case. And it's tough because people who follow it kind of casually in the news would have seen that a year ago and been like, oh, that's great. Good good for them. I'm glad that they're going to have a union down in Staten Island. And then a year later, you're like, oh, actually, they don't have one and they might never have one if something doesn't change. And so as as we head into the UAW contract negotiations, UPS contract negotiations, you're organizing. Let's let's say they do successfully eventually organize um, in this in the Cincinnati airport. How far away are they from the prospect of kind of joint actions? Because it, it feels like like at the hub in uh, CVG, for instance, you know, if those workers go on strike, supply chains kind of collapse. Um, and so is there any talk about kind of an industrial approach uh, that coordinates mm-hmm. these different actions or, or no, they're just going, you know, one by one? 
I mean, I I certainly wish the answer was a stronger absolutely. Um, I know, of course, there are people bo- in both of these unions or in all of these unions who really want there to be a more kind of one big union approach, even acknowledging that technically they'll be in separate unions. Um, but the reality is that is, you know, very hard to pull off. You know, this we're looking at this DHL story where, you know, even just getting to a union election is taking so much of a fight to sort of line these things up, these contracts or joint actions, given the constraints of the U.S. labor law regime, is a really tough, tough fight. That said, you know, I think there are very concrete moves in this direction. You know, one of the few resolutions that passed at the UAW convention was about honoring picket lines. You know, the Teamsters are are known as the only union that really in their contracts is the right to not to cross a picket line. So if workers say at your hub or, you know, at a place you're delivering stuff to, you know, this happened at Condé Nast when there was a New Yorker strike. If workers at another workplace are on strike, Teamsters do not have to cross that picket line. So they effectively make that strike much more effective because, you know, it's the Teamsters really often who do the work that keeps a keeps a company sort of moving and profitable, you know, delivery, things like that, moving things around. Um, and the UAW, the, the rare resolution the members passed at that convention was we want those contracts, uh, to our contracts to have that same provision. Um, we need to make that a priority. They cited a time when their members were f- basically pressured to cross a picket line. Um, and that picket line had been by other members of their locals, you know, is really tragic. And so there, it's very clear that people want this. They want more coordination. As I said, you know, the reformers in the UAW are about how do we organize across division? Um, and of course, the landscape of union kind of turf and laws is incredibly annoying and, and sort of makes you want to hit your head against a wall. Um, but people are trying to see how do we link up and coordinate? And you're seeing that also even among Amazon workers and the Teamsters as well. Um, there is this, in this moment of greater enthusiasm, there is also greater coordination. It just might take a little bit of time for people to be able to see that. Well, Alex Press, her latest piece for Jacobin is headlined, Can the UAW Rise Again? And I really appreciate you joining me today. Yeah, thanks for having me so much, Ryan. That was Alex Press, and that's our show. Daniel McGrath, a spokesperson for DHL, told me this in a statement. At the CVG Hub, we prioritize treating our employees with the utmost respect. We deeply value the rights of our workers and always prioritize their safety and welfare, not just at our hub, but in all of our operations. Since 2018, we have created thousands of job opportunities at CVG and have raised our wages by $7.45 an hour. We've also increased our PTO for all full and part-time employees, significantly increased both maternal and paternal leave for employees, and recognized MLK Day as an additional paid holiday. We're committed to remaining a competitive and attractive employer in the region, he goes on. Moreover, we've implemented a range of initiatives aimed at improving the safety and well-being of our employees. We offer individual counseling, and we've introduced automation that reduces physical demands. In fact, our lost time injury frequency is one of the lowest in the industry. We also provide training and orientation programs for all of our management levels to ensure that our core values are integrated into every aspect of our operation. We're dedicated to creating a healthy work environment, both physically and emotionally, for all of our employees. 
Additionally, we recognize our employees' right to unionize within the confines of the law and are fully committed to all agreements we have with our local, national, and international labor partners. We believe that fostering a collaborative and respectful relationship with our employees and their representatives is key to our continued success. With regard to the allegation that management used derogatory terms to describe our employees, we first became aware of this allegation via media reports. We have initiated an investigation into this and will seek to take corrective action against any manager found to have used such language in accordance with our code of conduct. DHL prides itself on our positive, inclusive, and respectful working environment, and the behavior described does not reflect our values or culture. If you missed it, last week's episode was a bit different than the type of interview show that we normally do. More of a narrative investigation I did with journalist Neha Wadakar into an American company that runs a chain of low-cost, for-profit schools in Africa and India. It's worth checking out if you haven't listened yet, if I do say so myself. Deconstructed is a production of The Intercept. Our producer is Jose Olivares. Our supervising producer is Laura Flynn. The show was mixed by William Stanton. Our theme music was composed by Bart Warshaw. Roger Hodge is The Intercept's editor-in-chief. And I'm Ryan Grimm, D.C. Bureau Chief of The Intercept. If you'd like to support our work, go to theintercept.com give. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to the show so you can hear it every week. And please go and leave us a rating or a review. It helps people find the show. If you want to give us additional feedback, email us at podcasts at theintercept.com. Thanks so much, and I'll see you soon. The number one selling product of its kind with over 20 years of research and innovation. Botox Cosmetic, out botulinum toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulty swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping, and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia gravis, or Lambert-Eaton syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.